Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. Now, this is Resurrection Sunday. I'd like to just take and off from our series and preach to us 1 Corinthians chapter 15. By the way, I would like to invite you to start reading Genesis again because I think three Sundays from now, we will be back in the book of Genesis. I think you have forgotten the book of Genesis already. It's good to refresh. When I went back reading that one, I was so blessed. I, I realized there are so many things I missed even as I was preaching it. So there's so many things to learn in the book of Genesis. So start reading the book of Genesis again, and we will be back three Sundays from now. Stand with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be skipping some of these verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now jump to verse 12. Now if Christ proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man or by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who have been, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And what do I gain 
If I die every day, humanly speaking, I fought with bees at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is so imperishable, what is raised imperishable. If it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you, this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection of Christ. And I pray as we study today that we would understand how important it is to us, that we might not just worship you, but that we become worshipers of you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why we rejoice in the resurrection of Christ? Why is this day supposedly a special day for us? And this is one of the things that grieve our hearts. Because sometimes in the church, it is during Resurrection Sunday that we miss some people. And as I've said earlier, understandably, because we are in the metro and we'll... And our families are in the province. But 
the Resurrection Sunday is supposed to be one, if not, what we really celebrate as, as believers. And this week is supposed to be a very important week for us. And I hope that you and your family or you yourself has really read the scripture this week and understand and went back and, and bring to mind what Jesus has done. I was trying to bring my family back to the cross this week. And I said, we will culminate our study this week with the Sunday preaching on the resurrection. I think this is very important. Now, in the Corinth at that time, a false teaching, a false teaching from supposed to be gentle Christians in the church has spread, denying the body resurrection. So notice carefully what they denied is a body resurrection. Listen to the question of Paul in verse 12. Paul asked, how can some of you, so it's, it's people in the church, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Anyone here who is denying the resurrection? Now these Gentile Christians, they believe that these are Gentile Christians because the Pharisees believed in the body resurrection. And there was no trace in Corinth that the Sadducees, those who do not believe in the resurrection, have infiltrated the church. And so the main problem here were gentle Christians who, the whole of their lives, they were influenced by Greek philosophy. And that, that was the culture, that was the thinking of their time. And particularly, this Greek philosophy they called Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is basically... We've already said this over and over again. They believe that body is evil and spirit is good. And in their thinking, actually, death is freedom from that which is evil. That when you die, you are finally freed. Your spirit, which is good, will finally be freed from the body, which is evil. And that is why these Gentile Christians, supposedly, in the church of Corinth, could not reconcile in their mind. They could not reconcile in their mind. How can it be that you are now freed from that which is evil, and now you will be trapped again in that which is evil? So they are saying, because in their understanding, body is evil, then they're saying there is no bodily resurrection. There's no body resurrection. But do you want to be a disembodied spirit? All throughout eternity. Do you want? I don't like that. I don't like to be disembodied spirit because I could not eat lechon. We, we can relate so much with this flesh. We, aside from the corruption, this is a good design of God for us. And I want to stay in the body throughout the rest of eternity. Now for the problem of this teaching on Denial of the body resurrection. We know that it has gained traction. It has gained following inside the church for Paul to address this. Or for those people who reported to Paul to include the problem on the teaching on the body resurrection. Today, even non-Christians are celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Popularly called in our country as the Easter Sunday. And probably many today are hitting the beach or somewhere that they can celebrate. And there are some right now who are looking for eggs somewhere. 
There's so much celebration going on. I believe it is falling short of how the resurrection should be celebrated. In fact, I really believe that even us Christians have fallen short of valuing the resurrection. And that many of us today come to church like any other Sunday. And many of us did not even think that it's a resurrection Sunday today. We are actually guilty of undermining the value of the resurrection of Christ, which separates Christianity from the rest of religion. In one of our small group discussion in the past, one of us said, we are always talking about the cross, but we do not speak so much of the resurrection as much as the death of Christ. Don't we? In our, in our small groups, we talk about the gospel and we center it in the cross, rightly so, but we have to understand, without the resurrection, the cross is nothing. If Christ did not resurrect from the dead, his death on the cross would mean any other death that has already happened in this world. He has a point. Certainly, we are guilty of not rejoicing so much of the resurrection of Christ. In this chapter, Paul sought to prove that body resurrection, our hope, that's our hope, by the way, our body resurrection when he returns, is true, proven by the resurrection of Christ. That we would bodily resurrect one day because guaranteed of Christ's resurrection in the cross. My objective for this sermon that we would have today is to make us realize that the resurrection of Christ, that the resurrection of Christ is not simply a day in a year to celebrate, however joyous the celebration might be, but one which does not only make us, a, make us worship God, but a worshiper of God. The other one speaks of what we do. The other one speaks of who we are. That the celebration that we should give to God is changing our character, changing our hearts, changing our identity. We are no longer worshipers of this world, but we worship God. We are worshipers of God because of our hope in Him, proven by the resurrection of Christ. That's my hope for us. As we were looking at Genesis chapter 6, that we would live with God. That we would build our intimacy with God and that it would lead to living for God because the resurrection of Christ tells us that there is nothing to lose. There's really nothing to lose for us Christians. We will do that by arguing through 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to answer this simple question. Why should the church rejoice in the proven resurrection of Christ? Why should the church rejoice in the proven resurrection of Christ in a time when the resurrection of Christ is undermined. Why should we rejoice in it? I'd like to draw four things from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First, Jesus' resurrection fulfilled the biblical gospel. We find that one in verses 1 to 11. Jesus' resurrection fulfilled the biblical gospel. It's hard to, today, there's always a debate who has the right teaching. We're always debating on that. 
But I think the resurrection of Christ seals the deal. It is not simply a good rhetorics. It is not simply a good argument. It is historical. That Christ has really risen from the dead and it proved that there's no other gospel, there's no other good news, but Lord Jesus Christ. So because there, was, there were some in the church of Corinth who said that there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul had to remind the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached to them. Which according to Paul in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, the gospel that the Corinthians, and that for this matter us, the gospel that the Corinthians have received, stand on, and are being saved. That's the gospel. Are being saved, meaning continuous salvation, because we are saved already from the penalty of our sins, but we are being saved, right at this moment, we are being saved from the power of sin until God would save us from sin itself. That will be in the day of our resurrection. So it is both true that we are already saved and we are still being saved. It's both true. However, Paul had to remind them that denying the resurrection of the dead, now that they are in danger of denying the resurrection, the body resurrection, they were in danger of no longer holding fast to that gospel. Listen to Paul at the rest of verse 2. He said, if you hold fast, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. Meaning to say, if, if we, we still have the right gospel, if the gospel that we're holding is complete, if we deny that God is holy, if we deny that we are sinners, if we deny that the sufficiency of what Christ has done, if we deny that Christ died, because they said Christ just was maybe fainting, if we deny that he resurrected from the dead, then we do not have the biblical gospel anymore. It's no longer the teaching of scripture. True faith in the gospel never stops. You cannot say, I believe it before and now, no, I'm no I no longer believe it. That's not what true faith is. Now, Paul's burden here is to prove that the gospel, which he called to be of first importance, look at verse 3. That's what Paul said about the gospel. It is of first importance. He wants to prove that this gospel that he preached is the biblical gospel or what the Bible teaches. He was not preaching a gospel of men. He was not preaching a gospel from an angel. He was not, a he was not just preaching a gospel of the church, but the gospel that the Bible teaches. Listen, and by saying, listen carefully, when he said, of first importance. He said, of first importance. In the context, Paul is like saying that if you miss the gospel, if you miss something of the gospel, if you take away anything of the gospel, you lost everything. Nothing will be left to you. You lost all hope. There is nothing worthy of praise anymore. All that is left to you is Purely religion that will not save. What then is the gospel that the Bible teaches? Particularly the Old Testament. When Paul said the scriptures in verse 3 and then verse 4, he was referring to the Old Testament. 
And it is good to note that the gospel of the New Testament is the gospel of the Old Testament. Actually, the gospel is the only gospel in the whole scripture. What then is the gospel that the Bible teaches? Notice carefully that four times that the word that is repeated, four times, Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first important what I also delivered, that Christ died for our sins. Verse 4, that he was buried. Still in verse 4, that he was raised. And then in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas and the rest of these people. Yet only two of these thats has the word according to the scriptures, words according to the scriptures. That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. It seems like that Paul would say a truth from scripture, particularly the Old Testament, then he would like to prove that Christ died for our sins, and then he said that he was buried. To prove that Christ really died for our sins, he said that he was buried for three days. And then he said that Christ was raised from the dead, and then he said that he appeared. He really raised from the dead because he appeared to more than 500 people. What Paul made sure is that we understand that the Old Testament teaches that Christ, notice his title, he did not say that Jesus, he said that Christ, because the word Christ is the official title of the Messiah, of the Savior to come, that he was claiming here that Jesus is the Christ that the Bible is teaching. He wants us to understand that the Old Testament teaches that the Christ would take upon himself the penalty of our sins. That is, his death and be raised again for our justification. That's what the Old Testament is teaching as far as Paul is concerned. Paul did not quote anything that from the Old Testament. He might just have looked at the Old Testament and understand the teaching pertaining to Christ. Now, as we look at the Old Testament, we know that there are passages that are clear on this. And very quickly, let's not go to some unfamiliar passage, but to those that are very familiar to us. Isaiah 53 Verses 4 to 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted by God. Look at it. But he, that's Jesus, was pierced. This is the Old Testament. It's very clear already. It did not say for his transgressions, but for our transgressions. He, Jesus, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with God, and with his wounds we are healed. It was his wounds and our healing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That's very clear that the Messiah who would come would die not for his sins, but for our sins. Continuing, look at verse 10 to 11. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush Christ. He was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering. So the soul of Christ, Christ himself, makes an offering for our guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Look at the word satisfied because that is the word justified. We already said last week that justification means that not that we have proven ourselves innocent. We are proven guilty. But we are justified by God because someone took our place. Someone paid for our sins. And because Jesus paid for our sins, we are justified before God. We need not to suffer the penalty of our sins. That's the word there. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servants, and look at that, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Look at that. The word satisfied in verse 11 again means justified, a word used for our salvation. By the anguish, verse 11, by the anguish of his soul, meaning his suffering, by the suffering of Christ, he satisfied the justice of God. He satisfied the justice of God. Thus, verse 11, the rest of verse 11, if you look at that, by that sacrifice, Jesus, the servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Make many to be accounted righteous. It is clear then, maybe Paul, when he writes 2 Corinthians 5.21, maybe Paul was looking at Isaiah 53, and then he interpreted it by saying, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I bet that Paul was looking at Isaiah 53, particularly verse 11, took it from there and said that the whole scripture is teaching that the Christ would die not for his sins, but for our sins. So if there is a Messiah who would come and just overpower the world without dying for the sins of those whom he came for, then that is not the biblical Messiah. The Messiah that the scripture is talking is a Messiah who would die for our sins. And Paul said in Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our trespasses, that's Jesus, and raised for our justification. Meaning to say that the resurrection of Christ is needed to prove that he really made the transaction, that God was satisfied, the justice of God was satisfied by his sacrifice, by his resurrection. Do we see that in the Old Testament? Look at, again, a very familiar passage of Scripture in Psalm 16, verse 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? Why did David say this? For you will not abandon my soul to shawl, or let your Holy One see corruption. In this psalm, in Psalm 16, David is declaring that all his good is in God. He said, apart from you, I have no good. In verse 1, and that God is his treasure, 
in verse 5 to 6. God is his treasure, and that God is his security in verses 7 to 9. That's why everything good, according to David, all his good is in God, because God is his treasure, and his security is in the Lord. To this security, David was sure. And the reason why David said, my flesh dwells secure, is in verse 10. And it was because, or verse 10 speaks of the resurrection. If you look at verse 10, this is not simply David, as he actually decayed. The one who did not see corruption, the one who did not see decay, was Jesus who resurrected after three days. He did not see decay. David then is saying that he is secure. Looking forward, he is secure because of the resurrection of Christ. It is now clear why Paul was really seeking to prove this is how important the resurrection is. And notice carefully how many verses that Paul spent to talk about how many people who saw the recent Christ. Talked about it in verses 5 to 8. He said, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500, 500 brothers at one time, if if during our time, 500 witnesses would win a case. I am sure of that. 500 witnesses of the risen Christ. Not some phantom, not some ghost, but really in the flesh. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and lastly to Paul. I don't want to dwell on that much. First Corinthians 15 has 52 verses. I just dwell with why Paul said it there. He wants to prove that Jesus has really resurrected from the dead. So here are two things that we find here. If Jesus did not really die, if Jesus did not die, not just die, but die as an innocent, he is not the Christ because the Christ will die not for his sins, but for the sins of those whom he saved. Secondly, if Jesus died but did not resurrect. If Jesus died but did not resurrect, then he is not the Christ because the Christ that the Old Testament is teaching will resurrect for our justification. Will resurrect for our security. Jesus had to die and resurrect if he is the Christ. He is to die and resurrect. It is no wonder why after after Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that one? And, and Peter was just the spokesperson of their whole disciples. They said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus made sure that you understand what kind of Christ I am. I am the biblical Christ. I am the Old Testament Christ. I am the Christ that this prophet spoke of. Jesus then said in Matthew 16 and verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus is saying, I'm not someone's Christ. I'm not your idea of Christ. I am the Christ of the Old Testament. The one who dies 
who will die and resurrect from the dead. And the rest of the book of Matthew, together with the rest of the Gospels, we know how it ends. It ends in the death of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ. Jesus did die and resurrect from the dead. Thus, Jesus is the Christ. Try following it. Try mimicking it. Our, our, the son of the devil in Davao claimed to be the appointed son of God. I will believe in you if you'll die and you'll resurrect from the dead. If, if not, then you are not the Christ. And you cannot, and by the way, you're not innocent, you're a sinner. There is only one Christ because there is only one who, who died as an innocent. And there is only one who resurrected after the three days, as the scripture says. Thus, the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, if at the end of the day, what is our, what is our greatest apologetics? Here's our greatest apologetics. Here's the greatest defense to our faith. No one resurrected from the dead but Jesus alone. There Muhammad died. There Confucius died. Whoever they are, they died and they did not resurrect. It proved that we have the biblical gospel. And on the other hand, listen to this. The resurrection of Christ proves the truthfulness of the scripture. I mean, the scripture can be all lie. How can you prophesy about someone who died and will resurrect from the dead? But if it would happen, it would prove the truthfulness of the scripture. You can stake your life on it. It proves the truthfulness of God that when he says things he will do, you can trust God with whatever your situation right now. You can trust God because we understand that God has proven himself trustworthy when he brought Jesus back to the dead. Because he cannot lie. Just a practical application of that. Why is it that we cannot trust God and His Word when we are in a difficult time? And another application is that we, like Paul, because of the resurrection, we are preaching and believing the right gospel. We are preaching and believing the right gospel. The resurrection tells us that we are believing in the truth. That we are really saved by virtue of our faith in Christ. That Jesus is really the Savior. That is why we rejoice in the resurrection. If not of the historical resurrection, listen carefully. Only Christianity puts their faith in true history. It is not something written fiction. No, it is true history. There was a man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, and who resurrected from the dead. It is historical. And because it happened, then what we have is true. I know that we can be so concerned of the things of the world, our savings, our success, our reputation, our future, because the world is telling us that security is there. The, the world is telling us the idea that your security lies on your own hand and on the things of this world. 
that those things could never give true security. What is the proof of the world? Let me ask you this one. What is the proof of the world? That security is in the things of the world. What proof can they bring? But listen to this. Jesus claimed to be the only way, truth, and life. What is his proof? He proved it by his resurrection. And by his resurrection, there is no doubt anymore that security is in Jesus. Second, why do we rejoice in the resurrection of Christ? Jesus' resurrection gives sense to everything pertaining to our faith. It gives sense to everything pertaining to our faith. We have to understand that the world will never understand why we live our lives for Jesus. The world will never understand why we sacrifice for Jesus. Why we deny ourselves for Jesus. Why don't you just live your life for comfort and security? Have you been asked of that? You have worked all your life and now you just want to serve God. That doesn't make sense. You can earn much if you work on Sunday. Why do you haggle not to work on Sunday just to go to church, to worship Jesus? You miss a lot. You can earn more. Our way of life would never make sense to them. And sometimes it also doesn't make sense to us, isn't it? Why can't I just live like the rest of the world? In verses 12 to 34, Paul would argue, he will argue here, that living the Christian life, living the Christian life, you sacrificing even your finances, you maybe giving up your life for the work of the Lord, after going to school for, what, 6, 4, was 4, 14? And then you failed twice, so 16, 16 years? And why would you just do that? It doesn't make sense. If Paul argued that living the Christian life doesn't really make sense without the resurrection. It does not make sense without the resurrection. But with the resurrection, everything makes sense. With the resurrection of Christ, everything makes sense sense. There are six if. There's six ifs in verses 12 to 19. Exclude verse 12, but you can find in verse 13, Paul saying, if there is no resurrection of the dead, and then in verse 15, if it is true that the dead are not raised, in verse 16, if the dead are not raised, in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, and in verse 20, or rather 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. Six ifs. Clearly, Paul wanted to see, wanted the church to see that without the resurrection, he just wants us to see here that without the resurrection, everything about Christianity will crumble down. It cannot stand. Christianity cannot stand without the resurrection. It cannot. It is no wonder that Paul's question that he sought to answer here is in verse 12. Here's Paul's question in verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead by the apostles that we find in verses 5 to 8, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? 
you have to understand that the people, etong mga tao po na inaddress ni Paul with this question, were again professing Christians. They were not people outside the church. They were people inside the church, but doubted the body resurrection. So Paul's main contention here, tingnan niyo po yung argument ni Paul. Papakita ko dito lang po siya nag-circulate sa argument na ito. In verses 13 and 16, here's the argument of Paul. If there is no resurrection, then Christ did not resurrect also. He said, if, if there's no re- really resurrection, if you're denying the resurrection, understand that you will also be denying the resurrection of Christ. There will be no resurrection at all. But if you deny the resurrection of Christ, everything you do is vain. Everything. Look at how Paul said this. In verse 14, he said, Their preaching is in vain. Their faith is in vain. In verse 15, he said, We are misrepresenting God, claiming that God raised Christ from the dead, when in fact not. In verse 17, Your faith is futile. You and those who have died in the faith are still not forgiven of sins. And in verse 19, Paul said, We who hope in the resurrection when there is nothing but Christianity, about Christianity but here and now, because there's no resurrection from the dead. Paul said, we are most, we are of most people to be pitied. It means, Paul's point is clear. If there's no resurrection, then Christ did not resurrect from the dead. If Christ did not resurrect from the dead, then forget all your hopes in Christ. Those are not true. In fact, in verses 29 to 32, Paul said that all our sufferings, all our sufferings would mean nothing. And he said, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we might be like the rest of the world. We might as well be like the rest of the world. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if there's no resurrection. However, look at how Paul appealed that there is resurrection. There is resurrection because if there is no resurrection, then the whole fabric of the Bible will fail. Because how did God design things? Look, you get verse 20 to 23. But, he said, in fact, that's not a theory, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, look at, Paul is now giving us a reason why he said that one. For as a man came death, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as, as in all Adam died, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruit, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Look at that. The fabric of scripture, the, the design of God is that our faith, yung ating pong destiny, ay nakasalalay dun sa head. When Adam died, death came to us. By the resurrection of Christ, we will also have our resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then we can ask, why do I get the death of Adam and then I will not get the resurrection? Paul's point here is the fabric of all scripture will crumble down if there is no resurrection. Because God's design is that death came upon us through one man, thus resurrection will come upon us through one man. And this the Lord Jesus Christ. So if there is no resurrection then, 
at his coming, then why then did the death of Adam came to us? Clearly, Paul's point is saying it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What makes sense is that because death came to us through Adam, then resurrection comes to us through Jesus Christ. In fact, he said in, what he said in verses 24 to 28, we don't have time. We understand that before Jesus gave back the authority to the Father, resurrection should have happened already. The end will not come unless we too are resurrected together with Jesus. Church, look at this. Without the resurrection, the fabric of God's plan scripture will crumble down. That's why there is resurrection for us. Christ really resurrected from the dead, and we will truly resurrect from the dead. I don't know with you if you think about it, but I think about it most of the time. I look at it, this is my hope, I will resurrect one day. Because of the resurrection then, our faith, our proclamation, our forgiveness of sins, our eternal hope is true. It is true. It is a reality. It is truer than you think you're secure because you have money in your bank account. Because even your money in your bank account could not help you. And you may not be able to keep it. So the reality, our reality is this, that we are secured in our hope of resurrection because Jesus has resurrected already from the dead. Our suffering matters. We are not imposters. We are the true ministers of God, of the resurrection of Christ, because Christ has risen from the dead. And as I have said in my previous preaching years back, when I was preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, I would say it again. No, we are not to be pitied. We are to be envied because our hope it's not in this life only. Our hope is forever. So ano ngayon kung wala tayo sa mga bagay na yon? Ano ngayon kung hindi mo mabibili yung latest iPhone? Ano ngayon kung wala kang ganitong ano? Our hope is eternal. We are not to be pitied. We are most to be envied. Because our hope is not earthly, but for eternity. So the resurrection of Christ gives sense to everything pertaining our faith. Therefore, let us preach the gospel. Let us continue to proclaim that our sins have been forgiven. Let us continue to live in a way that shows that our hope is eternal. And let us continue to suffer for Christ. Let us do this because all, all of what we believe and how we live our lives make sense. If they do not understand, why do you live that way? They will never understand that we understand because we have our hope in Christ Jesus. Some of us are doubting, is this really the way I should live my life? Why don't I just enjoy life? Is life supposed to be lived by denying self to obey Christ? Is this a right life? Some of us are doubting that kind of life. But it will be addressed when you look at the future and understand that this, is, this makes sense. This makes sense. 
I will not be compensated here, but I will be overly compensated when the resurrection comes. That leads us to the third thing. Why we rejoice in the resurrection of Christ? Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We look at this one in verses 35 to 57. We could not blame people who would sneer at us or find us proud when we say that our hope is secure. We cannot blame them. As I've said earlier, we too, maybe some of you, wonder if we would really resurrect one day. But then again, the resurrection of Christ guarantees it. One of the questions of those who denies the resurrection of the dead is what we find in verse 35. Okay, they're saying, if, given if there's a resurrection, but what kind of body do you have? They could not imagine a kind of body that is free of sin. So in their thinking, okay, you will have that body, but it will still be an evil body, and probably they would insist that it will still be subject to sickness, evil desires, and even deaths. Thus for them, body resurrection is nonsense. They were like saying, and then we would be like this forever? With the body, the same body, I mean, I agree with them. If that is the kind of body, this is the kind of body that I would still have. But let us look at what Paul argued here. Let me walk you through a little bit. This is long, so I will just summarize. Verses 35 to 41. Paul simply sick to use the fact that God gave different kinds of bodies. Give different kinds of bodies. Another for humans, another for animals, another for birds or fish. There are heavenly bodies. There are earthly, the sun, the stars, and other stars are different. Now Paul's point is, why would you doubt that God can give us a different body from what we have today? That's basically what Paul wants to drive home. That's why in verses 52 to 50, Paul shows the difference of an earthly body and the body that God will give us in the resurrection. There are six comparisons here, and I want to name them, of the body, our body today, and the body that is to come. Look at the comparison that Paul said. Perishable versus imperishable, verse 42. A dishonorable body and a glorious body, still in verse 43. A body of weakness and a body of power in verse 43. Natural body and spiritual body, verses 44 to 46. Earth or dust versus heaven, 47 to 48. An image of the man of dust versus image of the man of heaven, verse 49. What he's saying here is in Adam, we all inherited first the perishable the dishonorable, the weak, the natural, the earthly, the image of dust. But when the resurrection comes in Christ, we also inherit the imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, heavenly image of the man of heaven kind of body. We will be changed. For we cannot be with God with this body. 
But we cannot be with God in this body. We have to be changed. That's why look at what, how Paul drives home his point in verse 50. He said, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, that, that is our earthly body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see Paul's thinking here, and that's why in verses 51 to 57, this is the culmination, this is the high point of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul assures us that we will have a resurrection. For it is the ultimate victory of Christ. The ultimate victory of Christ is when he renews all things and he will change our bodies. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So we don't understand everything. This cannot be explained by science. This cannot be explained by anything. There will always be mystery. Here's the mystery. We shall not all asleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet which you find in Revelations 15, that's when everything ends. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Look at verse 54. This is very important. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, when would this happen? At this last trumpet, at the last stage. When Jesus returns and renews us, we will be given the glorified body. And look at what happened. When that happened, when that resurrection happened, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. So it is at this point that this would happen. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed in victory. Whose victory is this? Look at this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When there is no death and sin anymore, because God has given us our glorified and perfect bodies, it is when the victory of Christ, that Christ has won, is completed. His victory in the cross of Calvary is completed when he would give us our glorified bodies. The ultimate victory of Christ is when God abolished sin and death, and it will happen in our resurrection. Thus, our resurrection seals the victory of Christ. We cannot not be resurrected because Christ will not be fully rewarded. His full reward includes our resurrection as believers. Alan Johnson wrote, The overall point of this chapter is to set forth and argue for God's ultimate victory over death in the resurrection of Christ. Continuing, he said, The resurrection is the beginning of the new age. The resurrection is the new creation. The future in the present. The whole future consumption, consummation or completion of God's purposes in redemption is wrapped up in the resurrection of Christ. In other words, 
we are assured of that future resurrection because Christ has already resurrected. So Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Therefore, church, we rejoice. We rejoice in the resurrection of Christ because that which is impossible to their time, resurrection, how can we have that kind of body? What kind of body that we have? That which is impossible, that there will be a radically different body had already been done in Christ. There is no reason to doubt. There is now no reason. The prototype has been done. There is now no reason to doubt that we can have that radically different body from this. Our resurrection is our hope in Christ. That's our hope in Christ. Our, our hope in Christ is not living like we are glorified here. Our hope in Christ is not saying that we will not have sufferings here. Our hope in Christ is not that we would have the best of health here. Our hope in Christ, our destiny, is our full redemption. So let us not live for earthly. Let us live for eternity. Lastly, we rejoice. Why we rejoice in the resurrection of Christ? Jesus' resurrection fuels our endurance. It fuels our endurance. Endurance is hard, isn't it? We obey for a time, but at some point we're tired. We are excited to join the Bible study, but at some point we drop off. We wake up early to set up things, but at some point we stop. Endurance is hard. We obey for a while, but then we question then we question, it, is it worth enduring in the work of the Lord? Well, here Paul is saying that the resurrection of Christ tells us that it is worthwhile. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord, knowing that, what is it that we have to know? That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because the resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection, then we should labor in the work of the Lord steadfastly, immovably, and aboundingly consistent. This is the word therefore there. It connects to the whole argument of Paul in chapter 15, which ended with the ultimate victory, our resurrection. Paul's line of thought then is saying, Ganito po yung mind ni Paul. It is, if your resurrection is sure because of the resurrection of Christ, then be unhindered in the work of the Lord till you die. Be unhindered in the work of the Lord till you die. Do not let the change, do not let anything change the way you live your life serving Christ. He said, be steadfast. Do not let anything swerve you to something else other than your commitment to Christ. Be immovable. Do not grow weary or be stingy in the work of the Lord, but be always abounding. In what reason? Why would I do that? Why would I steadfastly obey Christ? Why would I immovably obey Christ? Why would I always abound in the work of the Lord? It is not because 
you will be blessed here, not, not because you will not suffer, not because all that you do will prosper, no, but because one day we will be overly compensated when the resurrection comes. Paul's point is that our hope in Christ is more than enough. Our promised resurrection in Christ Jesus is more than enough to give our lives away for the work of the Lord. How precious is your life? How precious is it? How much did you invest in your life so that you are who you are today? And as a businessman, you look at your life and you say, I have invested so much on this. Where would I give this? Is it worth giving it to Christ? And Jesus said, well, let's have our mathematics here. You will invest your life in the things of the world. And what then? You'd lose all of them and you'll be in danger of losing your own soul even. Jesus is saying, give your life to me because that's worth it. You will actually save your life. Church, the motivation when we serve God is not simply our earthly reward. It's not bigger ministry. It's not praises from the people. It is not even earthly blessing. No, the motivation, the work of the Lord is our ultimate hope of being resurrected one day. Given a perfect body that we might be able to stand seeing Christ face to face. God so wanted us to see Christ face to face. But because we cannot do that in this earthly body, He would change this body so we can stand looking at Christ face to face. Which I believe is incomparable. Nothing in this world can be compared to seeing Christ face to face. I do not know what's your hope right now in your heart. But I, am, I understand seeing Christ is greater than being the billionaire. Seeing Christ is, is greater than being married to your crush. Seeing Christ is better than being the CEO of your company. Seeing Christ is greater than having the biggest bank account. Seeing Christ is, have, is greater than having the best of health. And that is the hope. Why settle for less when that which is infinite is ours for our taking? Listen to Paul. In the Lord, your labor will not be in vain. You will not be in vain. Your labor will be overly compensated when your resurrection comes. Sometimes we feel like there is no fruit in our labors. We feel like God missed us. God cannot miss it. He knows everything. You know what? He will one day overwhelm us of that glory that awaits us. He will overwhelm us. In fact, Paul said to this point that we would at that day see our labor, see our sacrifices, see our suffering as light and momentary in comparison to the incomparable eternal weight of glory. It's like driving all the way to Baguio and we complain because there is so much traffic. But when you get there and feel the cool breeze, you feel like I can do this over and over again. We're just talking about Baguio here. You and I, if God allows, would feel shame why we grumble in the work of the Lord 
when we get to see our full reward. This is how we can relate to Habakkuk. When we look at that future, we can relate to Habakkuk who said in Habakkuk 3.17-18, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive oil fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there would be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Jesus' resurrection assures us that all our labors will not be in vain. It will not be in vain. We will be undeservedly. We will be undeservedly compensated in our resurrection. Let us not be swayed by the seeming perfect life in this world and stop serving God for our perfect life is yet to come. When it comes, when our perfect life comes, we will realize that serving the Lord is worth our life. By then we would understand, why didn't I serve God? Why didn't I give my all to Him? Why didn't I choose to lay down my life? Church, we should rejoice in the proven resurrection of Christ because it proved everything we believe. The resurrection of Christ proved everything we believe as true. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we are sure that our gospel is biblical. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we prove that our claims are validated, our forgiveness, our message, and that we are ministers of God. Because of the resurrection of God, we are given the worthy reason to endure in the work of the Lord. Because of the resurrection of God, Christ, it is true that we will have our own resurrection. Everything we believe is proved by the resurrection of Christ. Let us not be double-minded. God did not say, I'll prove to you that Christ has forgiven your sin. Look, I'll make it rain. It's just not what God... Look, I want to prove to you that you will have your resurrection. I will make you rich. That's easy. He proved to us by the undeniable proof of the resurrection of Christ. I think, I think, what explains our life, or our life shows how much we believe in our hope. Instead of being double-minded, let us go all out in praising God. Let us go all out in proclaiming Christ. Let us go all out in serving Christ. Praise God for the resurrection indeed. It should take our celebration to greater heights from what we do to our whole being. Because of the resurrection of Christ, which proved everything we believe is true, praising God is no longer just what we do. It is who we are. We are not just serving God. We are servants of God. I hope that we celebrate it with our lives. Let's come before God in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the undeniable proof of our hope in Christ, and that is his resurrection. We pray, Lord, that this would not just be words for us, but that we understand that this is real. That we live for that day. We don't live for the here and now. We live for that day where our true reward awaits us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.